0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidra Tyler, host. Today we'll be talking with Greg Glassgrove and Catherine Mayer, authors of Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalist, and the Ski Resort That Never Was. How are you doing today?
0: Doing great, thank you so much for having us.
1: Thank you. I wonder if you could start by telling the audience something about yourself and how you got started on this project.
0: Yeah, sure, so we are a married couple. We live in Parker, Colorado, just a little bit south of Denver. And we both are longtime writers and journalists. We both write for our day jobs, and we both do a lot of freelance writing as well. We weren't really looking to write a book, but this topic sort of found us, and we thought it was very interesting. We are sort of longtime Disney history fans, and we had been on a trip in 2018 to the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco And there's a giant timeline there of Walt Disney's life. And that timeline included the fact that he had tried in the 60s to build a ski resort in California, which was interesting enough to us. But then the timeline also mentioned that Walt's partner on this project was a guy named Willie Schaeffler, who we knew of because Willie Schaeffler was a Colorado skier. At the time, he was the head ski coach at the University of Denver. And we actually met working at the University of Denver. Catherine graduated from there. So that really perked our interest in this whole thing. And we started doing research and discovered this whole story of how Disney tried to build a ski resort in Mineral King, California in the 1960s and 70s. And then a big battle with environmentalists ensued and even a Supreme Court case and really um, ultimately ensure the project wouldn't happen.
1: Now, you start the book with the date of September 19, 1966. Tell us why that date was so significant.
2: Sure. It was the day of a big press conference in Mineral King, California, which is the site of this, where Disney was planning to build this ski resort and year-round destination. And it was where Walt was actually in the valley, so a lot of significant um a lot of significance there that he he was in, you know, he was in mineral cane with um, with all his, his partners on the project and also the California governor at the time, Pat Brown, and they had announced that there was going to be enough funds to build a road that would take people to this destination. And that was a big sticking point was, you know, because they had to basically create a, an all-weather highway that would make it, you know, easy for people to get to this destination because at the time there was a very winding, strenuous road um, that, that made it fairly impossible for people to get to this area. Um, but another significant was, you know, they were talking about what, you know, what they wanted to create here, what was talking about his vision, about how important this was, how he loved nature, how, you know, what he, exactly he wanted to create. And it was right before a very, very significant moment in the history of the Disney company. And spoiler alert, it ended up being Walt Disney's final press conference. So a very, very significant moment in the history of
0: Disney.
1: Mineral King, tell the audience about that location. And what was Disney's vision?
0: Mineral King, California is kind of in the center of the state. At the time, it was right on the edge of Sequoia National Park. It's near Bakersfield and Fresno. And it was a former mining town. So there was a big uh, gold and silver rush there in the 1800s. It never really panned out too much. But then it kind of became this little resort town, a little outdoor um, oasis for people And by the time 1965 rolled around when this um, area was put up for bid by the Forest Service, This was a, you know, a little town where there was a few cabins and a general store and a post office. But for the most part, it was this great kind of unspoiled wilderness area with lots of great mountains and slopes around. And Walt wanted to build um, a ski resort, yes, but also a year-round outdoor recreation destination. So this would have had, in addition to skiing in the winter, would have had other snow play activities like ice skating, sledding, tobogganing. In the summer, they would have brought people up to the tops of the mountains on ski lifts, and they would have had nature walks and hikes, fishing, camping things like that. And that also would have had a sort of a village area in the resort with multiple hotels and restaurants, a movie theater, a chapel. So it really would have been an all-inclusive, you know, resort getaway. And it was also important to Walt to make it very environmentally friendly. So they were going to have no cars allowed. They were going to hide the parking underground in the service areas. They were going to camouflage all the ski lifts and the buildings as much as possible. So he really wanted it to be, you know, a destination for the family, for skiers, but also a place that celebrated the beauty of this wilderness area.
1: Why was Walt Disney interested in the ski business?
2: So it was a couple things. I mean, he he did ski. He started skiing, I think it was the, the 1930s. Just he considered himself kind of in you know a a casual skier. He said he wasn't very good at it, but he liked he certainly liked the sport. He would go with his wife Lillian as well as his daughters, and so so that was part of it. But the fire for him really got lit um, for skiing and for for really creating what this was going to become when he he actually played a role in the 1960 Winter Olympics in Squaw Valley, California, which is super interesting. We go into a lot of detail about that in our book. A lot of people don't know this, but Walt was the chairman of pageantry, which meant that he basically was responsible for a lot of entertaining at, at the Olympics. And... Um, he was responsible for he basically reimagined the opening and closing ceremonies he essentially reimagined a lot of what entertaining at those olympics looks like he he would try to bring a lot of performers that um, during, during off hours, essentially for the athletes. And so he basically looked at that. He combined this kind of sport and spectacle, and he more or less looked around and thought, you know, I could do something with this. You know, he was on the top of the slopes, looking at, looking at skiers and, and kind of what, what all this was about and thought I could do something with this. I could create a Disney branded ski resort. And so that was a lot of, of why he wanted to do this. It was really, yes, he had always been interested. It was always in the back of his mind, but he, it was really quite spurred for him at those 1960 winter Olympics.
1: Tell us about Walt Disney's farm background and how that had an impact on his life.
0: Yeah. So he spent a few years um, of his early life on a farm in Missouri. And that's where he really got familiar with animals and the outdoors and really loved to spend time out there. And he, um, you know, he used to ride on a pig and hang out with, with the cows and all the other animals. And that really instilled in him this love of animals and wildlife that really lasted all through his life. You know, when he did movies like Snow White or Bambi, you could really see that love of nature and that sort of really striving to represent these animals authentically. And in the 1940s, he started a series of wildlife documentaries called the True Life Adventure Series that really became a touchstone for a lot of young people to learn about animals of the world, to learn about different areas of the world and, you know, in school and on television. And sort of ironically, that series helped to sort of give birth to this environmental movement that later, you know, was one of the big oppositions to this Mineral Cane project.
1: Now, you, you tell us about um, the educational films. Is there anything else you'd like the audience to know about how those educational films were made?
0: I mean, it was just a really interesting process. This all started, the first one was actually made in Alaska right after World War II. Walt, they were looking to sort of add educational films maybe as a new source of income for Disney. And Walt sort of commissioned a camera crew up there to go around and get some footage of Alaska, thinking maybe he could turn this into some kind of educational film. And when he saw the finished product or all the footage that they shot, he really was taken by the shots they had of these seals playing. And it really struck him that he could do something really neat with animals and kind of a series just on animals. So he um, commissioned different film crews over the years. A lot of them were husband and wife teams, interestingly enough. And they would sometimes spend two or three years in a certain area, you know, getting film of these animals. And then they cut it all together, kind of in the Disney style, where they would sort of attribute these human characteristics to the animals and put some music in there and stuff. So they weren't always the most 100% accurate depictions of the animals. But, you know, it really did give a good sense of what these animals were like and their lives and stuff. And they were really very popular for a long time.
2: Another interesting thing to note was that, It kind of, those films really spurred a lot of kids to grow up and and appreciate wildlife and appreciate animals. And essentially, you know, in some ways, Walt Disney, you could say, created a lot of environmentalists um, because of these films, which is
0: really interesting.
1: Now, tell us about the Sierra Club. Were they against Mineral King?
0: They were. It's very interesting part of the story is that initially they actually were for Mineral King. Back in the 40s, they had sort of recommended Mineral King as a good spot for skiing. They were looking to stop development elsewhere in California. And they said, well, instead of building here, why don't you look at a place like Mineral King? This would be perfect. But then, you know, 20 years later, when this land actually came up for bid from the Forest Service, the Sierra Club actually at that point had changed a lot, had become a lot more of a conservation organization, an activist organization. And a lot of the young members at that point were very opposed to a big development like this on this kind of pristine piece of land that they described as a jumping off point for nature. And they really started to mobilize against this resort. And they spent a lot of time in the mid 60s, you know, fighting this, this project through letter writing campaigns and hike in protests and a lot of different, different things that they tried to, to stop it.
1: Imagineers. There were lots of um, people who were Imagineers. Tell us how they played a role with Walt Disney. You
2: know, they, a lot of them really just created the vision that Walt really wanted. He was very particular, of course, about what he wanted that made him, you know, extremely, extremely special and extremely motivated. He, he always kind of had significant ideas for, for, what, um, for what he wanted, but they basically created a lot of these amazing concepts. They, they helped, especially with the parks and these experiential... Things that that Walt was trying to develop a lot from the from Disneyland and and what kind of attractions and and rides were were in the park to Mineral King as well. There was, we talk quite a bit about an, uh, one Imagineer in our book in particular named Mark Davis who started to create Walt's vision for this entertainment that he wanted at. This Mineral King Resort, which was a band of audio animatronic bears that were going to sing and perform for for guests. And, you know, even though Walt did want to create something that was really about appreciating the area around, around them. You know, he wanted guests to come into the area, understand the animals, take a look around, go on these wilderness walks and talks and, and things like that. He did think about creating some entertainment to, you know, to have that kind of touch of Disney magic. And he turned to Mark Davis, who is a favorite imagineer of of Waltz, who started to create this this bear entertainment attraction, and for Disney Parks fans, they will probably recognize this concept as the Country Bear Jamboree that was first originally planned for this Mineral King resort.
1: 1964, the World's Fair in Disney. Tell us about the GE Exhibit.
0: The GE exhibit that they put together was—I'm trying to remember which one it was. Carousel, <laughs> not now mentioning it. it right? That's right. The carousel. Of Pro- they did a few different um, exhibits for that World's Fair. Uh, yeah, so the Carousel of Progress was something they put together for General Electric that kind of showed the history of electricity in the home. And that, of course, is also in the parks now as well as a carousel of progress. And that was just one of a few different attractions that Disney created for that World's Fair. It was a big kind of moment for them to test out and experiment with and invent new technologies and things like that. And they were really sort of working with other people's money in the sense that, you know, these companies like GE and Ford and even the state of Illinois, was funding a lot of these projects and it was a great place for Disney to try out things. And, you know, yeah. In addition to the GE exhibit that became Carousel of Progress, they did another exhibit for Pepsi that actually became, um, it's a small world, which is interesting. And even did an exhibit for Ford, the Ford Skyway that later found its way into, um, what, what eventually became the people mover. So they, that was really a big place for them to test out a lot of their great new technologies in the sixties.
1: Mary Poppins. Tell us about the significance of how this uh, story led to greater things.
2: Well, the Disney company, interestingly enough, was struggling financially um, for for a little while in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Even though Disneyland had just opened in 1955 and was a major success, the studio was having was having some issues. Sleeping Beauty, for instance, they spent millions of dollars, but it was a box office failure for them and. They were basically trying to think about where, what direction they wanted to to go in. There was talks about shutting down the animation arm altogether, which is so hard to imagine. Obviously, Disney without its animation department and, and not having some of these remarkable films that we have today, but they were basically trying to Um, you know, figure out what, what they could do. They were obviously spending quite a lot of money and yes, some of them were successful, but others were not. And then they landed in the mid 1960s on Mary Poppins. This was something that Walt again, you know, wanted, um, really, really wanted. And he kind of had this idea of combining a live action and animation. It was, it was kind of a new, a new thing for them. A lot of people, at Disney weren't again exactly sure what Walt was envisioning but he was really adamant about it and it became a huge success for the Disney company and really really turned things around so it was it was extremely important to to the company at that time because it also gave them enough funds to help make some of their other you know dreams come true and of course that included this mineral cane project and it also helped to give them enough funds and confidence as well for the Florida project which they also started to to think about in the 1960s as well of course that later became Walt Disney World which opened in
1: 1971 now Walt Disney Disney started losing weight and he gets sick tell us what happened
0: he yeah he had been He had an old polo injury in his neck that had been bothering him for years and years. And he also was a heavy smoker. So he was going in to actually get surgery to correct sort of this issue with his neck to release some pressure on the nerves and things. And then when they went in to do kind of the pre-surgical workup, they realized he had a big spot about the size of a walnut on his lungs and unfortunately was diagnosed with lung cancer. He um, had one lung removed and sort of rallied for a bit, but not long after that. And this was all happening right after this 1966 press conference that we start the book with. And unfortunately right after that, he passed away in December of 1966 from lung cancer. And it was really a big, you know, pivotal point for the company, of course, and a pivotal moment for this Mineral King project. There were some in the company that weren't sure if it was worth carrying on with this dream. And there were others that really wanted to make it happen for Walt. So it really, you know, really sort of changed in some ways the course of the the project, although they really did carry on with it for a number of years afterward.
1: Tell us, how did his brother step into the picture?
2: Yeah, that was that was really interesting. So you're talking about Roy Disney, who was Walt's older brother. And so obviously, Walt pretty much unexpectedly passed away. And they didn't really have a plan for what exactly was going to happen. So of course, it was a very natural fit that Roy would step in. He helped found the company and he was extremely important to the history of the Disney company. He, in some ways, I think people could argue that he, you know, he helped it thrive even more than Walt in some ways, just because Walt was the dreamer, but Roy in a lot of ways helped make those dreams happen. He, he funded the ideas and, and came up with the finances to, to again, help, you know, make Walt's dreams come true. But he also didn't Roy did not like to be at the center of attention. He liked being behind the scenes. You know, Walt, by contrast, was a very gregarious, fun guy that that was great in front of people. Roy preferred the arrangement of being behind the scenes, but he had to step in when Walt when Walt passed away. And and he did a he did a fantastic job because he he basically ensured that things would continue to happen including the Florida project. Um, he ensured that that was funded and that that happened because Walt really wanted it to happen and he also tried to ensure that this mineral cane project would happen. In fact, the day after Walt passed away, one of the first things that Roy did was send out a statement to Disney employees, but he also sent it out as a press release to so the world could see. And he said, This is a tremendous loss. You know, of course, we're all extremely upset, but I will make sure that what Walt wanted will continue to happen. And he called out two of those things. He called out both those things I mentioned. He called out Mineral King and he called out the Florida Project because he wanted to ensure that those things would happen because they were extremely important to to Walt.
1: Now, how was the debate changing with the Sierra Club and politics in the 60s? What was going on?
0: So, yeah, as we mentioned earlier, the Sierra Club, you know, they really started out as just sort of a, almost an environmental appreciation organization that would organize trips into the mountains. And it was just for sort of hobbyist hikers and even rock climbers and things like that. But, you know, the 60s, as we know, is a time of, you know, up, upheaval in every area of life. So there was a civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, anti-war movement, and environmentalism was really growing right alongside that. I mean, there was a lot of problems at that time with pollution, with things getting really bad from that point of view, concerns about overpopulation, concerns about overdevelopment. And the Sierra Club by the mid-60s had really become you know sort of an advocacy organization they did work closely with some politicians and some lawmakers and they had a lot of good relationships with some of the leaders in california and other states and they were really in case of something like mineral king they were really involved in trying to stop that and they tried to stop development in other parts of the country as well so it really was an interesting time for that movement the first birthday happened in 1970 to kind of give you an idea of where you know everything was at that time and that was spurred by a couple of kind of high profile pollution problems a river catching fire in ohio and an oil spill off the coast of california um, so yeah they were just really becoming this advocacy group that they continue to be today and mineral king was kind of one of the first big cases that they took on or the first big projects that they opposed and because disney was involved it got a lot of publicity at the time and really kind of helped to give their cause a lot more visibility.
1: Now, let's look at some of the people who were very interesting in telling this story. You talk about the Interior Secretary of Interior, Udall, and Mineral Falls. So tell us about what was his role?
0: So yeah, he was the secretary of interior. So he oversaw, it was kind of interesting because you kind of have these two factions of the federal government working at odds in some ways. You have the national forest service, which is sort of tasked with finding ways to make money out of the forest, you know, whether it's logging or other development and things like that, they're there to sort of make sure that the forests, you know, remain beautiful for people, but also can generate some income. And they're the ones that put this mineral king area up for bid and Disney was the company that won that bid. The Park Service, on the other hand, which is what Stuart Udall oversaw as Secretary of the Interior, was really there to you know, keep the parks beautiful, the national parks very pristine and protected as much as possible. So the big sticking point for Stuart Udall, who had worked under President Kennedy and was really this kind of tenacious guy in the government, was really well known for his environmental views, And he was, Catherine had mentioned that road that was going to be built through Sequoia National Park to get to this development. So he was extremely opposed to that road. And really the whole development kind of hinged on this road. Catherine mentioned there's this kind of primitive winding road into the area. And there's no way that that would have been able to handle the kind of traffic they were talking about. So that really the only route for a highway would have gone through the park, would have potentially endangered a lot of giant sequoia trees and things like that. So Stuart Udall really dug his heels in and said, you know, I don't want this going through the park. I want you to explore other options. I want you to look at a monorail. I want you to look at a railway and really do a lot of other work before we even think about a highway. So his resistance really held this project up for a while, even before the legal battle started with the Sierra Club for about a year. Stuart Udall kind of single-handedly um, made this resort sort of in limbo and not able to get started.
1: Another person, Jean Coach, and her summer homes and how she wrote those letters. Tell us that story.
2: Yeah, she was she was super – she was just an incredible person. She lived in Mineral Cane for part of the year, so even though this was an area that, you know, wasn't really – super developed. it was not untouched. Um, it certainly you know it had a number of, of, of cabins um, about 60 67 cabins I think that people would live there for part of the year and it also had a post office and things like that. but Jean Koch was one of the people who had that cabin and and it was in you know she had purchased it in the 1950s with her husband. It's still in their family today by the way. Um, but it was extremely you know th- this was her oasis she she loved it her family loved it she had spent her she grew up essentially with mineral cane because her, her family also had um, had vacation there all the time but so obviously the mineral cane cabin owners like Jean did not want this to be built because they did not know exactly what was going to happen to their cabin they more or less you know, assumed that their cabins would be destroyed to make room for this resort. And even if it wasn't, there would, of course, it would not be the same. There would be whirling machinery all around it. There would be thousands of people there. So they were, um, so they tried to obviously not have this happen. And she, in particular, basically led a lot of this opposition, which was, which was so cool to see because the environmental movement was growing at the time but also the women's rights movement was at the time so of course this was a a female in the 1960s and 1970s who who basically led this and she wrote thousands of letters i think to to everybody to tons of organizations to the disney company to politicians to news newspapers um, that's what she did and she also put up signs she actually funded and created a documentary with some filmmakers about mineral king she led certain protests but she was extremely extremely involved one of one of the leaders against this this project and and the things that she did made a really big impact she um, those letters that that we mentioned she we rewrote in the book she kept carbon copies of all the letters she, she had, had wrote and she, she saved those for years and years. We're obviously talking about, you know, over 50 years ago, but she saved them and later donated them to the University of Southern California. So we actually got to read a ton of her letters because we went to that archive to, to see it. But yeah, an incredible person that, that really made a really big impact on that, that opposition.
1: New York resident Hazel Henderson, tell us about how she connected with the story.
0: She, yeah, she was a, a, you know, sort of, as Catherine mentioned, this group of women in the 60s that were really involved in environmental movements. And she kind of helped start the, the clean air society or something like that we don't have it right in front of us but yeah she was one of many women that were involved at the time helping to create these this environmental consciousness and really helping to drive the environmental movement forward that women played a large role in that in the 60s yeah
2: and she was new york based and what was interesting with her is that she would go on these walks with her daughter and i think that that was a big reason too for for a lot of women at the time is they they thought you know we don't want this you know some of these bad conditions to affect our kids and the next generation so i think that was a a real big catalyst for quite a lot of a lot of um women she would hand out flyers um, educating people talking about some of these movements and the importance of you know no pollution clean air and You know, others would with clean water and things like that. And she would hand out flyers when she was walking her infant daughter, actually, through the streets of New York in the park. So very, very interesting. A lot of grassroots movement, which was really cool,
1: too. Another person, McCoskey. How did he fit into this story?
0: Yeah. Michael McCloskey was the head of the Sierra club at the time that all this was happening and we were lucky. He's still around. We were able to connect with him kind of one of our primary sources on this. So we interviewed him several times for this book and he had great memories of this, but he was a longtime environmentalist. He was, he came into the Sierra club in, this, in the early sixties, moved to California. And I think 65 after sort of working for the club in the Northeast, And he eventually became the head of the club in the late 60s and it was sort of him that decided to try a legal avenue to stop this development. So he was really opposed to this from the beginning. He even at one point before Walt Disney won the bid to develop there when there were six different bidders um, that all submitted their bids at the same time in the summer of 65, Michael McCloskey went out and actually reviewed the bids in California went and like looked at all the different plans and things like that just to kind of give his input on what the one he thought would have the least environmental impact. And then later on, um, the Sierra club was right in the heart of San Francisco, their headquarters, and they were near a law office that had been sort of designed as a nonprofit to help environmental organizations. And he went to them and just said, Hey, do you think we have any Avenue to fight the, um, this Disney project in court, and he got a couple of those lawyers to look into it, and they said, yeah, we think there actually are some laws that they're violating, some things you could fight on. So McCloskey kind of led the charge to bring this fight into the courtroom, and that's what actually ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court. William Douglas. William Douglas was a Supreme Court justice, actually former Sierra Club member, so he had been on the court for a long time. He was well-known for his environmental views, and he had actually led some protests and things like that decades earlier. But by the time this case came around, he had actually given up his membership in the Sierra Club altogether because he had a feeling— the way the winds were blowing, that there was going to be a big environmental case like Mineral King that would land in front of the Supreme Court. And he really wanted to be able to weigh in on it. So when this case eventually made its way to the Supreme Court, Douglas was one of the justices who heard it. And although the case actually went in favor of the resort, in favor of the government, in favor of Disney. Douglas wrote a very kind of famous dissent in this case that became really a touchstone for environmental law in the years to come, sort of arguing that you know areas like Mineral King, in a sense, have the right to be their own plaintiff in a case like this, that they could be you know protected in court purely because of their aesthetic beauty, not because, an individual shows some kind of a financial or personal interest in it. So that really became sort of a guiding light going forward. And he had a really big role in the history of environmental law through this case.
1: Christopher Stone, what was his role?
0: Christopher Stone was a law professor actually at the University of Southern California. And he wrote sort of in the same vein as Douglas, he wrote a famous essay called, Do Trees Have Standing? And he wrote it sort of about the Mineral King case and this other idea about standing. So one of the big concepts in this whole court case around Mineral King is, does the Sierra Club have sort of the legal standing or the legal right to bring this case? You know, is it sort of the historically for a lawsuit like this, you would have to show how you personally were going to be damaged by this. This is going to damage your financial interest somehow, so it's going to damage your personal, you know, enjoyment of something, these kinds of things. But the Sierra Club very deliberately didn't file their suit in that way. They filed their suit purely on protecting this aesthetically beautiful area. And Christopher Stone agreed that that was something that needed to be explored. So his, his paper, Do Trees Have Standing, actually William Douglas referenced this in his famous descent. And again, it was just that idea of do trees have legal standing to protect themselves? Does someone have to come in and say, if you cut down this tree, it's going to affect me financially? Or can someone just say, don't cut down this tree, because it's a beautiful tree that should be allowed to, to live and thrive. So that was they were both kind of on the forefront of this way of thinking.
1: Now, 1971 was very pivotal. Um, there was the court case then the Florida Park opens and Roy Disney. Tell us what was going on in
2: 1971. So Disney World just opened in 1970. <laughs> in 1971. And um, so, you know, that was a really big, big moment for for the company history. Um, and also there was a ton of movement at the time with this mineral king case. It was... There was um, the Sierra Club had filed some of their some of their lawsuits against the project, and in that's when it went to the Supreme Court. And so, obviously, it was it was a weird time for Disney because it was, you know, they were celebrating this this major accomplishment in the fact that. Uh, Walt Disney World opened and Roy by the way made it a a point it was originally going to be called Disney World but he really was really wanted it to celebrate Walt so he then started uh, he then made the move to to name it Walt Disney World instead and so there was this big celebration of course that, that Walt Disney World had opened but then there was also kind of a sadness because they were not sure what was going to happen with this Mineral King project. And the case eventually went to the Supreme Court in 1971, and the Sierra Club had sued the U.S. government. It's important to note they sued the U.S. government to... To not have this development happen and not the Disney company. They made it a point of saying they didn't want to sue the Disney company because the government were the ones who put this area up for, for bid and allowed it to be developed. And Disney was, you know, Disney was a beloved company at that point. They didn't want the optics of saying, you know, we're going to sue the, this company and we're going to sue Mickey Mouse. We're going to sue this um you know this company that a lot of people really loved so so they decided to keep them out of it but of course the optics for the disney company didn't look great they they kind of they were a little quiet about the situation they didn't necessarily want to um to you know keep defending um you know kind of bring bring their names into this lawsuit. So they, they kept quiet kind of for the most part during that time later, they were not as quiet about it, but, but of course it wasn't looking, it wasn't looking great. And it was, so it was, it was a weird time because again, there was, there was quite the celebration because of Walt Disney world, but their things weren't looking great as far as the, this mineral pain project. So very interesting time for them.
1: Tell us about Mer- mineral King today.
2: Mineral King today is essentially the same as as it was during that time. It is um, you know, at that moment in time in the 1960s, 1970s, it was on the edge of Sequoia National Park. The the main difference today is it is now a part of Sequoia National Park. That's you know, that's kind of how the story ends, but there's there's um, there's certainly a lot more that that goes into it that that people will will read about in the book and and even a lot more that happened even after it was put in the park, but you know those cabins are still there. Um, Jean Koch, who we talked about a little bit ago, her she unfortunately just passed away. Actually, she was um, this year she just passed away. She was a hundred years old, so she had a great long life, but. But that cabin is still in her family. And so a lot of those cabins, they're still there. They're just passed down from generation to generation. So, and those cabins are still there. People are still enjoying the area. They're hiking it and camping and things like that. But there's no, um, you know, there's no Disney Resort there. So that's the, that's the big change. The other, the other thing of note is that that road that we talk about, it was, it was never built. So it is kind of a big pain to, to get there because it's not accessible for, for much of the year because that, that road is closed, because it's dangerous and, and things like that.
1: Now, what is the overall message you want to leave the reader with once they finish your book?
0: I mean, really, we approach this as journalists, as trying to be as objective as possible. I mean, I think what we want people to walk away with is just what a complex story this is. I think you might go into it thinking, you know, there's a bad guy, there's a good guy, there's a hero, there's a villain. But we kind of want people to just walk away with what a complex situation this was, kind of how pure the motives were on both sides of this, and just how situations like this can really have multiple sides. In addition, just sort of what a big moment this was in kind of environmental history, Disney history, even U.S. history. So, you know, the idea was, again, just to kind of tell this really big story with a lot of implications and let people sort of make up their own minds about, you know, should this have been developed? Should it not have been developed? And and that sort of thing.
1: Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on?
0: we are working on another project right now we can't really reveal exactly what it's about yet it's definitely also in this kind of pop culture history vein may even have a, a slight disney tie um, but that's kind of all we can say about it right now but I did, I did want to mention that people can go to disneylandonthemountain.com to learn more about this book and to figure out where to buy it and to they could even message us on there and let us know what they think of the book and what they think about you know sort of their opinion of what should have happened
2: yeah, we'd absolutely love to hear from anyone who who reads it because we do tell both sides, like we mentioned. So we're we're kind of hoping that you know people it spurs a conversation. Um, even though it you know even though it was many years ago, we're we're so curious about you know what people think. Was it was it right that it was built or was not built, or do they wish it was built? So well, please, please contact us. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We thank
0: you. Forward. Really appreciate it.
1: Oh, my goodness.
2: This was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we
1: look forward to all of your projects. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much.